Hello everyone and welcome to the Highlander cast. I'm your first host, Vance. Joining me as usual is Sav. Hello everyone. And this week we've got a special guest, Julian. Hi everyone, I'm Julian. In case you don't know me, uh, I'm a Highlander player from Melbourne and I've been playing Highlander pretty regularly since 2014. A couple of Eternal Top 8s, but yeah, mostly playing in Melbourne. Cool. Glad to have you with us, Julian. Yeah, we're happy to be here. All right, let's do a what's the point. We're going to have a special twist on what's the point. We're going to talk about what was the point. And today, what was the point is an all-star pre-9th of May 2014 at one point, but coming down to zero points for the rest of history, hopefully. Necropotence. Necropotence is a really interesting card. Uh, I'll read its current text. Its old text is pretty weird. Uh, So it's black, black, black. So three black mana. Its first two lines of text make it sound not very good. The first line of text is skip your draw step. Awful. Second line is... Why am I playing this card? (laughs) Second line is whenever you discard a card, exile that card from your graveyard. That sounds like Angus's worst nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound great. But then the next line is the important one. The next chunk of text is the important bit, which is pay one life colon so pay one life as a cost uh exile the top card of your library (laughs) that's i mean that's some serious cost yeah exile your colon would be pretty bad (laughs) exile the top card of your library face down put that card into your hand at the beginning of your next end step so when this card was first printed in ice age inquest magazine which you know there were paper magazines at the time because that's how history worked rated the set and it rated this card as the worst card in the set they are infamously wrong it's one of the most powerful cards like historically, it's one of the most powerful cards in Magic's history when it's ever, whenever it's been legal in Standard or Extended. When you've got Necropotence, what, you're usually going to be playing it in an aggro deck or a combo deck. It's very young, common in control and mid-range sort of decks. But what you want to do is you go, all right, cast this turn one, ideally, by you know ritualing it out with a Dark Ritual. Um, and then, because a lot of people think, oh, well, I pay a life to draw a card, but I draw a card anyway every turn. But what you're actually going to do is you're going to say, oh, I'm going to pay seven and draw seven cards. And then I'm going to have to discard a bunch and exile, but then my hand is great. And then that'll be fine for me for the next couple of turns, and then I'll draw five again, or whatever. Or if I'm a combo deck, I've seen JP and other people play this card in Storm, where what you do is on turn one or two, you cast this, and you draw 10 to 15 cards, and (laughs) then you win the game the next turn. So you don't care what that, that you're only on five life you don't care that you're exiling a bunch of cards you're sculpting yourself an incredible hand and just winning the game so that's why it was a point so it was first a point probably on the first points list um or soon after yeah i feel like in that era it would have just been a powerful card in regular constructed magic so it was probably like a cautionally pointed is it kind of like modern where there's bitter blossom and all of the you know ancestral vision they were, they all had a point when modern started because it's like this has been established to be a good card in all other formats so let's put a point on it so well, not pointed i mean banned <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if necropotence was quite a well-known enough quantity at the time the, the points list started which is why it might not have been on the first list yeah necro was uh the first deck john finkel won a major event with was um, a necro deck which was just using pump knights and drain lives to get around the drawback of paying life just beating the opponent up with massive card advantage out of this black weenie deck have you watched um, those coverage from those days where they had the you know the unsleeved decks and you know, like <laughs> scrubland 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 necropotence uh, draw five. Oh, it's painful yeah <laughs> i love yeah, yeah, it yeah. so it's just like I, I just have these really conflicted feelings when watching it but it's so cool it's magic yeah. in its purest form <laughs> oh, it, it, right. it really is. Um, 
So the, so the fairest use of necropotence is, and this is truly the fairest use, is your uh, Neiman burn, so black-red yep. aggro, and you kind of have put a couple of creatures out, you've started to attack, you maybe sent a burn spell somewhere, and then you've got your necropotence, you go, oh, my, I've got three cards in hand, so I'll just draw five, I'll discard a land, I'll pass the turn, the next turn I send a bit of burn at your face, play another creature, uh, and then I do the same thing again, wash, rinse, repeat, and that is... Uh, that, that's your way to reduce your opponent's life total from 20 to zero really, really fast. And yeah, that's the it's the way use. to recover from the card, card disadvantage of playing out your hand of one and two drops and, you know, maybe your opponent toxic deluges and kills them or something. And then you're like, well, play Necro, refill my hand, replay my board. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, it lets you like burp out your hand, refuel, burp out your hand, and being an aggressive date, you don't care about the life loss every time you draw, you know, five or seven. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so up until 2014, this was a point. The reason it lost a point, I can't remember whether this was before or after I was on the committee. I should have double-checked that with Isaac. But anyway, the reason this lost a point is because at the time, black base black weenie decks were unplayably bad. This was before the printing of a bunch of the newer, probably just after the printing of Gravecrawler, but there's, you know, a bunch of the newer recursible uh, dudes mm. like Dread Wanderer hadn't been printed. Or Bloodstock Champion. So, so those decks were incredibly bad. Red Black was okay, but Necro is a bit tough to play in that deck because particularly at the time, that deck was a lot more red than black. And it's okay in combo decks, but it's not... Um, no one's playing Illusions Donate, which is the thing that's really scary with Necro. In a combo deck, Yorgmoth's Bargain, even though it costs twice as much, is enough better because you get the cards immediately. And you can discard to your graveyard, which is sometimes relevant, rather than exiling things. I mean, it's quite relevant if you're playing Storm. That we didn't need both of them to be a point, and Necro goes in aggressive decks. So that would have been the reasoning for, for taking a point off it. It's still a very good card. I know that uh, Dylan's list of... Well, I'm pretty sure that Dylan's list of uh, red-black plays one in the board, I think. JP plays it, and I think his is also in the board, although he might have it main, it fluctuates uh, in Storm. So this is definitely a card that if you don't own a copy, uh, you should try and pick yourself up one. Uh, the art is quite weird, and if you've got the Ice Age version, the text is also quite weird, but it's a very powerful card, and it's, it is it is a lot of fun to play with. You're on the edge of, this, of your seat when you're playing it because you're like, all right, so just how aggressively can I afford to draw extra cards? And you do occasionally get in a position where you're like, I might be in a position where I can't actually afford to draw any more cards for the rest of the game. Um, mm, mm. But you're probably going to win. Yeah, that yeah, seem, seems right. Resolve Necropotence, probably going to win. For yeah. uh, those... Did we did we just Necro a thread on Necropotence? Technically, uh, look, when look. we just... You know, we did what was the point. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we did. I mean, what was the point, um, just for, you know, meta podcast commentary... When Julian sent in his audition tape, if you will, um, it was something he suggested on that. I thought, oh, that's a good idea that we're probably going to need to do eventually anyway because although we've got a lot of points to get through um, at a rate of one a fortnight, we're going to run out of those by the end of the year probably or pretty close. So this gives us another well of things to discuss, uh, talk about uh, individual powerful cards that people might not think about because you do sometimes get, um, particularly with newer players, that they look at the points list and... Obviously, that's a good indication of these cards are really good in this format. But you can get cards that are very powerful that 
aren't on the points list because they're not quite good enough or they used to be good enough, but the metagame shifted or whatever, you know, a la Steel Shaper's Gift or similar. So talking with people about cards that used to be a point is a good way of giving people a good indication of cards that are worth people revisiting. So that was the point of Necropotence. Mm, nice. Thanks for that aside. Uh, so I guess we're going to jump into the actual topic of today. And the topic is... We, we haven't really thought of a name, so by the time of the end of this episode, we will have had the name that has been created that you have seen, but we don't know what that name is just yet. Uh, something like January, February, Major Event Metagame Data Down Under. <laughs> uh, I, I really hope it's more exciting than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, something to do with these major events for the last uh, couple of months. So, uh, something, to- something events. Yeah. That's, that sounds about right. And you can tell us how wrong we were based on the actual episode title, which you know, and we don't, because you are time travellers. Now, <laughs> let's go, let's dive into it. So we're going to uh, crunch data from CanCon uh, and also from the GP uh, Sydney Championship, Highlander Championship. And what we've done is uh, we're going to... Uh, pull these major events into essentially one event of 113 players. And these are pulled largely for the convenience of our discussion because otherwise we'll spend about, you know, 17-odd episodes talking about metagames and not actually dive into the things that people want to talk about, which is, you know, uh, certain cards and certain, you know, archetypes and new brews. So... Uh, we're really pulling them mainly because they're temporarily relevant because they were within one week of each other. And uh, there are a number of uh, flaws to this strategy, but it's a convenience as well as some of the advantages, which is getting a, a, a heavier top 16, i.e., you know, your typical uh, cut is a little bit more broad. So yeah. we should we should specify, particularly for the more statistically minded of our listeners who will definitely tell me otherwise, um, we understand that there's going to be a lot of people who are in both these pools of data, which you know pollutes it somewhat. Um, but yeah, whatever. We did it anyway. Yeah, thug life. So yeah, look, right. look, we didn't. I didn't choose the stats life. The stats life chose me. And I have delved into Graham King's breakdown from Oz Eternal. If you want to see the full detail of all the points, uh, he's gone through systematically listed all the points uh, played from all the decks at all positions, uh, and also put in uh, deck lists as well for the top cut. So check it out. He's done heaps of work, a pillar of the community. But let's cut straight to the chase. Now, we're going to look at what decks people chose to actually rock up with on the day. And I'm going to go through them in terms of the uh, percentage breakdown from highest to lowest. The highest is to, relatively to be expected. 25.2% of the metagame was control. And shortly after that, both sharing a very similar uh, metagame share at 21.6%, we have both midrange to be expected again and aggro which is something new. This is something that we haven't seen. It's quite unprecedented in Highlander where more than one-fifth of the population are going, well, I'd like to actually sleeve up an aggro deck. Uh, after well, that... Uh, unprecedented in recent times. In recent times, that's that's right. Um, uh, Vance can wax lyrical about when Zoo was the deck to beat and is the, the main aggro uh, archetype. Uh, now... That seems to be the uh, the largest portion of the meta. So, you know, control, midrange and aggro. 
Then we drop down to a steeper drop-off at 11.7% for ramp decks, but not that much different. 10.8% played combo decks, and 9.1% played tempo decks. So we kind of have this uh, split between control mid-range and aggro, taking up very similar large proportions of the meta, and then half of those numbers roughly... Uh, are represented by the more unfair decks, which are ramp and combo, and then we have tempo in the rear. So, all right, so I'm going to turn it over to you guys. What do you think about that breakdown? So, a lot more people playing aggro decks is good. I assume that includes, because um, I don't know how you've broken it up, I assume that includes the, there was a bunch of Canberra guys on red, blue, Sort of blue moons, but much more aggressive burn. Sort of blue moons. Was that yeah, an aggro? That's yeah. an that's an aggro deck. It's really so. It's really funny because we could do a whole episode on the blue red shell. The blue red shell has yeah. a spectrum. You can sit your deck somewhere along the line of aggro, which is a large amount of burn, and then you go through to tempo, which is you know small creatures, but you have soft permission like spell pierces and so on to protect them. And then you go a little bit further into this kind of almost this uh, control esque. Uh, uh, well, you area, but you still use your, you know, your lock pieces and a, a couple of, you know, creatures here and there that you back it up with. Then you've got the hard control, really, really pure yeah. blue red uh, control decks. So, yeah. and I, I feel like the the mid range spectrum is kind of that little wavelength is kind of glossed over. Like there seems to be a mm. big jump from like aggro and tempo into control, and there's yeah, that seems to traditionally have been the case. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, mid-range is another could... classification where you go, like, are you value mid-range where you don't play Tarmogoyf because it's just a creature? Or are you somewhere in between where you go, well, I, I'll play creatures that don't necessarily do anything to generate value, but they're amazing threats. So, yeah, these <laughs> so, the, the de- definitions are very loose, but it's a, it's a you know, ballpark. Yeah. So, so stepping back to the stats, Jump and Acro can be partially uh, attributed to a team of Canberra players, so there would have been four or five people who probably played the same, mostly played the same thing in both events, which can cause a bit of a statistical aberration in a relatively small sample size with some duplicates. Um, but it would also have been an uptick in general take-up of aggro, uh, I would suspect. So that's healthy. Um, it's kind of what we're aiming for by putting strip mine to one. Uh, in fact, more or less exactly what we're aiming for. Um, what do you think, Julian? Yeah, I like. I think when people were discussing, it's a like, hey, maybe we should bring strip mine down to one. You know, there are arguments for and against, but the primary argument for seemed to be that people were looking to find a way to bring aggro back in. And yeah. you know, in the points announcement, you you was stated that the intention of this depointing is to try and give aggro a burst of life. And it seems they have done the case just on the surface. But you know, as you said, this might be a statistical issue where you know we had a group of players play the same aggro deck in two events but you know i'm sure sarva has broken it down to a bit more detail for us yeah it was it was very ex- exciting as well for us where on the committee we had been discussing uh doing the point switch from strip to loam for something like maybe nine months or so and when we finally mentioned it publicly and said on the you know on the watch list is strip mine but this will be accompanied by it was funny because there was no strong reaction. Normally when you do something like this is on the watch list and then everyone just goes up in arms, out come yeah. the pitchforks and you go, don't put this on the watch list. You know, this yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, 200 posts later. <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly everyone kind of goes, that wouldn't yeah. be oh, unreasonable. 
you know and we went oh wow yeah. okay <laughs> yeah lots of love reacts but people yeah. say yeah cool you know thumbs up sort of thing <laughs> it is always surprising because even if there've been plenty of things we put on the watch list where like 70 or 80% of the community are like oh yeah that sounds reasonable but it's rare that you don't have a uh, chunk of the community at both ends of opinion who wish to strongly express it. Yeah, look, I think that's worked out well. Combo being down is, I'm a little bit surprised, but not mm, that mm. surprised. I mean, again, part of that is going to be that a chunk of those people I was talking about before, and it is only four or five players, but, you know, over the course of 10 events, it's like, you know, 10% of our, over the course of two events, it's five or 10% of our sample size. Would have been playing combo decks otherwise. So, you know, in a, in a relatively small sample size, you get one chunk of people making a decision to switch, and you see these kind of, you know, aggro up 6%, combo down 6%. Like those players, those new aggro players have to come from somewhere. And in this case, they all came from the same place of being, the, you know, the, the previous regular combo players. Look, they look for something fast and they found it in aggro. And in terms of, you know, mid-range and control being roughly the same, um, that's good because it means that uh, taking strip mine down, I mean, maybe taking strip mine down hasn't had quite as much of an effect on people's desire to play controllers. Uh, we might have hoped, but it's, you know, ballpark. And it's, I think the other thing is, because the change happened a week before CanCon, which, have we said publicly we're going to change that size? Yeah, I don't know, so we've, we've mentioned that we're going to be uh, endeavouring to have our announcement out one week earlier than normal. And if that changes, if it, if it becomes earlier than that, then so be it. But that's that's our official statement. It's going to be one week earlier than normal before CanCon. Yes, because otherwise you've got a pretty big risk that I, particularly I suspect for people who are travelling that telling people the Monday before and the events on Saturday, a lot of people are going to be like, ah, my deck's still fine. It doesn't affect yeah. me directly. I'm not going to spend, you know. Cause, because Highlander is still a uh, niche format, really. And like this total population in the world who play it doesn't yeah. exceed 500 is my guess. Yeah. Like it's a niche format. It's eternal. It is expensive. You know, not only do people might have to buy cards to change their deck, they have to maybe borrow cards. Like, you know, if I said to you, Vance, hey man, can I borrow a, a Mox Emerald? And it's actually, I need to borrow a Mox Pearl. You know, that's, that's a bit of a big ask. So something that you guys uh, touched on there was about change. You know, what's the meta been like before and, and why is it changing now? And, and you know, getting yep. down to the nitty gritty. So let's look at how this breakdown of decks that people chose to rock up with has changed compared to the meta in previous major events all the way across 2018. So... I've pulled all the events across 2018 that were considered major. Uh, definitions can be in the show notes at some point. The uh, comparison has been... I, I can gloss over four of them because these are relatively straightforward. Across 2018, roughly 24% of the meta was control. And this, this these two events, these pooled data events, 25%, it's basically the same. It's... It, which is probably a, a good sign that people don't go, you know, they go, oh, you're, you're hosing control. Uh, they're, they're going, well, I'm still going to jam my control deck. So, you know, control's still sweet. At a quarter of the meta, that seems fair. Uh, same with mid-range. Mid-range has been 20% of the meta all the way through 2018, uh, the average. And here at about 21%, it's basically the same. So even with the, running the risk of getting back to basics out, even running the risk of getting your land in your four-color deck getting strip mined, uh, people are still happy to rock up with mid-range at the same level. Uh, same thing with ramp. 
ramp was about 12% of the 2018 meta, and here it's about 12-ish percent as well, so people are still happy to sleeve it up. And same with Tempo. So Tempo was 11% of the meta through 2018, and uh, in the beginning of this year it was, you know, just above 9%. Again, that's the difference of maybe, you know, one player, so it's fundamentally not really a dramatic change. Um, Personally, I think that uh, with the success of Rug Life over the last couple of major events, it seems likely that people are going to say, well, this is the best tempo deck. But the problem with that is you need a time walk. So with sanctioned yeah. events, you might not actually see... So tempo, maybe it should be 20% of the meta if this deck is the best deck. But it won't be because people don't have that many time walks. So yeah. that accessibility is a, I, is a I reckon thing. if... If accessibility wasn't a thing, I reckon tempo would be fourteen or fifteen percent of the next major event. Yeah. For sure, I agree. It just like perhaps even between CanCon and the GP could have seen a jump, but like people couldn't source time walks. You know, yeah, there's week. only so many that can go around, right? In that in that yeah. small short period, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. But we'll talk about the future later. Let's talk about the two decks that have changed. And Vance hit this on the head before about uh, aggro and combo. So. Agro's meta share was, you know, in the 20s percent uh, this time around. The average over 2018 was 14.5%. So this is a solid bump up. Now, this is coupled with um, uh, combo. It's a significant drop. So we're looking at 11-ish percent now. It was 18.5% during 2018 now it looks like you guys have hit the nail on the head saying the aggro players are probably the combo players and if we tracked back the data due to individual players we can probably identify that uh but it seems to be a matching percentage doesn't it yeah yeah i mean as julian said they've got to come from somewhere um i think as, as well as what i was saying before combo Certain kinds of combo deck are more under threat than they used to be. This is the proliferation of artifact hate that we have talked about previously. That some combo decks are completely reliant on having specific artifacts like a, a Paradox engine um, mm. in play. That you know, If your Academy deck taps out to play a Paradox engine and is in the middle of preparing to go off an eye, Colligan's command it and make you discard a card, you're probably going to lose the game mm-hmm. um, a large percentage of the time. So that can definitely have an impact as well. But... Yeah, the rest of the the rest of the metagame is in a very healthy position. Um, I, th- I think we've discussed before on here. Um, oh, and you've got your notes further down, but I'm just going to jump in on, over the top mm-hmm. of you. Um, what we've discussed before is that our ideal metagame is sort of seventy five percent fair decks, which is you know control decks, aggro decks, mid range decks, decks that are trying to play the game in a sort of natural progression of the game. Um, and 25% unfair decks, decks that are trying to, on turn three or four, cast Tendrils of Agony after casting 10 other spells and just end the game immediately in a relatively unfair slash degenerate manner. Yeah. Um, or play an Ugin on turn four or turn three or something like that. Some yeah, kind of like, yeah, yeah, ranty, yeah. Some do, nasty business. Do, do something which is much more than... Like we're not talking about decks that are just trying to put a four drop into play on turn three or a five drop into play on turn three. That's you know relatively speaking fair. That's a, um, a fair mid range yeah, deck could do that. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're talking about decks that are trying to skip out on five like multiple or ten turns mana of mana. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. It's usually um, like a, a big jump in mana that you'd expect to have, but it's also temporary. 
Yeah, and, yes. and what we're seeing here is that um, un unfairish decks were about 23% of the matter and fair decks were a bit over 77%. So that's pretty close to our mm -hmm. preference. You know, if it was a couple more, if unfair decks were 27 or 28% and fair decks were 72, then also fine. Yeah, so um, that's fine wiggle room. Like, we basically just don't want to see a switch. We don't want to see a 75% unfair meta, 25% no. fair. And then people, new players go, I'd love to try this new format. I've got my old uh, uh, burn deck or my old Boros aggro deck that I can convert into a Highlander deck. They rock up to their first tournament. Someone goes, uh, turn three, tendrils you out. The next person goes, uh, turn three, Ugin, make you lose all your permanents. And they're just like, why did I sleeve this deck up? Why am I playing this yeah. format? And that's still going to happen yeah. to some people sometimes, but we don't want it to be the average experience. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. We don't want to be in a position where rocking up to a tournament and attempting to play a good, honest control deck or a good, honest aggro deck is objectively stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like you want people to go, I want to do this cool thing, or whether it be a control deck, an aggro deck, or like a combo deck, and they have a reasonable chance of winning. They've still got to show up with a good deck. If they're showing up with a white weenie deck featuring armies of Alar and Jihad, they're going to not have a great time. <laughs> um, or maybe they'll have an incredibly great time. Maybe they love those cards. Who knows? But uh, people still have to be playing an actual deck, not just 60 random cards, preferably. Um, but yeah, you want... You want all playstyles to be reasonably playable without um, without it being an incredibly unwelcoming environment for uh, fair decks. Mm -hmm. All right, so we've talked about the meta game. We've essentially the breakdown of what people actually sleeve up. Uh, let's look at conversion rate. So conversion rate is really about looking at how a deck actually performs or how a general archetype performs and what we have done is you know pull these two events so it's understandable that there will be statistically a very slight skew towards the smaller event which had a fewer number of rounds and a different kind of cut to the top eight and fundamentally that is something that we we could account for with some rigorous statistical uh, analysis here but fundamentally we're doing a broad strokes approach if we're, if we're looking at an n of 113 the more you try to break things down and analyze things and protect it from uh, error, the more you end up making it a little bit fallacious. So we're doing a broad strokes and then just chatting about it. So some of our language is going to be a bit footloose and fancy free around some of this. It's just, as Sav said, it's intended as a broad strokes sort of suggestive estimate rather than, you know, actual facts necessarily. Yeah. We don't have it like, it's, we just don't have the large enough data to like you know start doing excel regressions and whatnot exactly <laughs> i mean you could but it wouldn't tell you very much and excel probably tell you hey this is not good data stop yeah. and, and, and that's something that we've uh hit on before um and we talked about last episode is highlander is not a format where there's enough data for us to be giving really highly detailed, accurate assumptions of, oh, this card or this deck is the best deck or the best whatever, we can say, look, this has been doing well when people have played it. But it's not like something like modern where wizards can go, all right, we've had 15 GPs and 400,000 games played on Modo that we can look at the stats from. Uh, we just don't have it. Yes. It's great. 
run yeah. a run a run a Highlander GP Wizards, uh, but <laughs> one day, you know. one day we'll get we'll get yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry, go on, Saf. Alrighty, so uh, what I'll do is I'm going to uh, use an example, and I'm going to use this as a way to convey how an archetype has, or an, uh, basically a play style has performed, and uh, I'm going to use ramp as the example. So ramp's total meta share of people who sleeved up the deck was 11.7%. The percentage of the top 16, which is the pooled top cut for these two events, was 12.5% ramp. So that is a very comparable number. So what we're looking at there is a sensible conversion rate. Uh, if you were to look at the you know percentage hit rate that you expect the average person with any deck they sleeve it up and what is your what is your chance of being in 113 players and actually getting into the top 16 the average there will be 14.4 percent so uh, ramp has a 15 percent hit rate so it's fundamentally entirely on par when we look at it statistically we're saying this is a perfectly fine conversion rate. You people have rocked up with this deck, they've played it, and they have converted into a into a good finish, uh, the average way one would expect with that particular yeah, almost archetype. exactly the average. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the one I'll use as the example. Now, what we'll do is let's look at the two archetypes that uh, are statistically less likely to perform well. One of them you will not be surprised about and the other you will be surprised about 12 out of 17 doctors say they hate him right here we go <laughs> you will never guess what this one deck is that was not okay so the uh the one that's unsurprising and this has been consistent across all of the events of 2018 agro had 21.6% of the meta nice boost in people sleeving it up but only a 12.5% representation in the top 16 breakdown so this is about an eight percent hit rate so it is definitely below the mean it's something that we would say would be if you were to sleeve up aggro and attend events in these two events you are less likely to actually get into the top cut that's uh, almost half as likely yeah so there's, there's there's reasons why we can't say half so so yeah fair, that's fair. i'm just saying less likely you know this is a this is a loose broad strokes but i completely understand what you mean you know it it is uh it's not a good outcome so discuss yeah so i i think this is probably although it's lower than you'd like i think it's probably slightly better than agro's done in some of the previous events we've talked about in mm -hmm. detail um so it's an improvement for sure i mean agro was hitting at like a zero or some ridiculous rate yeah. it just was never and getting top eights and i think there's a couple of factors um that are maybe part of this pull down uh, so so one is aggro decks and mid-range decks are the decks most likely to be sleeved up by new players mm -hmm. uh, or people who haven't played the format much even if they're not new players as such and that obviously does have some impact on success rate like any magic format, if I, I, I don't play a legacy at all, if I rocked up to a legacy event, I'm not going to do as well as person X who is the same overall magic skill as me, but who plays legacy once a week, because I just don't know what cards people are going to play. I don't know if I've built my deck right, because I'm just less familiar with the format than they are. 
Um, so, so that's that's definitely an impact. I think another impact is because a lot of extra people were brewing aggro decks. Some of these aggro decks aren't going to be very well refined. Mm. Um, yep. So yeah, I was about to make that point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Take it away. Yeah, like, it's, you know, people jumped from combo to aggro in anticipation that our oh, aggro is better now because of, you know, mm. they've stripped my depointing or various things. But, like, when, you know, they might have, that might have been the first big event they bought that new deck to. And like you yeah. said, it might be a bit unrefined and untuned. And it, you know, when you make a new deck and the first event, you know, is a big event, it's a bit of a hit or miss sort of coin toss. Mm. And, it, you know, it seems like it hit a bit less than it, than it would have, they would have liked. Whereas something like um, Kess, let's say, for sake of argument, is a much more refined deck. You, you've had a lot of really good Highlander players over a large period of time working on it and trying to refine it. And, yeah. and I think the third reason, which relates back to that reason, is Ravnica Religions has a lot of really playable Highlander cards and a bunch of them are good in aggressive decks um, or look good in aggressive mm-hmm. decks. And it's possible that some of them were just not as good as people thought or, you know, related back to the last point, they just haven't tuned their decks to make the most out of the card choices they've made. Mm. Um, or, or they're just less familiar with playing some of those cards. Yeah, I was talking I was talking with uh, Dylan Kakawa about the red-black aggro deck and we chatted a lot about all those new cards. There were so many new cards from... Uh, from yeah. Rakdos that go into that deck and we wanted to jam them all in but he, his experience is in the aggro deck and so I'd be going oh what about this card you know is this is this good and it just goes it just doesn't make the cut you know and yeah. when you have an experienced aggro player tell you these all new sweet tools are great but you can only play two of them uh, that's different from the player who goes, I don't have the opportunity to test this. I don't have the opportunity to chat with the person about it. They sleeve up those new cards and it actually made the deck worse. So yeah, That's right. You, mm. had, you had these, you know, six or... Um, I've certainly been guilty of this. You had these, you know, five or six or seven sweet new cards to your aggro deck and halfway through the tournament, you're like, all right, this one is terrible and this one is terrible and this one is terrible. <laughs> um, and I wish I had worked this out yesterday. So what's yeah, our next... True. Sorry, so I want to make one more point about the aggro yeah. things. Like, like Vance, you said before, like, you know, when these new cards come out, you know, maybe they are good enough before Highlander, but people are unfamiliar with them. Like, um, yeah. a card that you guys talked about in the, in the preview episode a lot was Light Up the Stage. And, you know, maybe it's possible mm-hmm. that someone was playing, it's a Light Up the Stage. Yep, good card. It's perfect for the deck. But because they haven't played with it much before, they kind of sequenced their first couple of turns leading up to the light of the stage incorrectly and mm, then it just yeah. didn't perform as well as it should have, you know, given their yeah. previous plays. Yeah, Especially absolutely. when they're so eager. They're like, I, I really want to cast this. I'm going to get to see how good it is. Here we go. When they should have maybe held it for one turn or something. So, yeah, I, basically, we, we say that, yes, it has a poor hit rate in this particular, uh, you know, you're slightly less likely to go well in this these particular two events. But... Because of those explanations that Julian and Vance have touched on, what we're saying is that don't shelf that aggro deck. If you just sleeved it up, if you just built this aggro deck, keep testing it, keep playing it. That hit rate will go up because this is just, it could easily be a statistical anomaly or at least affected by a number of these factors. So let's go on to the second one. This is the one I said will be surprising for you. Now, at 25.2% of the meta share, control was the most popular archetype to be sleeved up. However, it's only 18.75% of the top eight metagame breakdown. With an 11% hit rate, you were actually slightly less likely 
to perform well when you sleeved up a control deck in that 113 person meta. Now, even though it only looks like it's slightly less, you know, it's kind of similar to aggro, oh, this is slightly less of a performance, but you still got into the top eight, no problem. It's actually, when you look back at all of the 2018 events, the worst conversion rate that control has had basically ever. So... Well, yeah, because the, the GP Melbourne uh, event, the conversion rate for control was like double It was great. Oh, it was so yeah, I think there was like four control decks in the top eight. Mm. Yeah, well, four or five, and and they weren't any more proportion of the event than this. Exactly, um, so you, exactly right. And so you, you don't... You, you, if you were to tell someone, what deck should I, I have sleeved up today based on a statistical, you know... Uh, analysis in all those 2018 tournaments if you just played control you would have been you know more likely to cataris paribus actually get into the top cut now uh this is this is a huge change for control and this is what i want to underline for people when they say when they see okay look controllers people are still playing so much control you know raising the pitchforks and going why is control still dominant and so on uh statistically it it's it didn't actually perform as well as people thought it would i'm not super surprised so in terms of 25 percent of people still sleeving it up that, that that again comes back to people who've got the deck they're familiar with it they like playing it mm-hmm. cool. especially especially throughout the experience they would have gained in 2018 yeah that's yes. right that's right um they know it's a sure thing like okay Kespal, everyone's extolling the virtues of Kess and going yeah. grixis control yeah. is the best deck in the format blah 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 uh and we're obviously you know guilty of doing that because that was basically the theme of 2018 if you summed it up to yeah, one theme absolutely. it was Kespal yeah. is the best deck <laughs> yeah <laughs> like in in 20 in at the in december uh my friend asked me oh what should i play in this you know highlander event i haven't played highlander in a while and i said just just play Kess. It's, it's the best deck you can tune it for the mirror or something and you know after the points change if someone asked me hey what should i play in cancon i still probably would have said yeah mm-hmm. just play kess yeah the meta's changed strip mines but you know kess is still probably fine you know i can imagine yeah. like that conversation might have been had somewhere else and a bunch of people maybe you know new to highlander or felt like changing decks you know what i'll just take the the most recent kess deck and that might have been tuned for you know plenty of control mirrors as opposed to the new meta that turned out mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah so that, that's one of the things i was gonna say you know uh if everyone thinks which does happen sometimes. If everyone thinks X is the best deck, you get a bunch of people playing it tuned to play against itself, and then it's not quite as good against some of the other decks as they thought because, yeah, sure, Kespile can play Blood Moons in the board, although I still can't fathom how they can really support that mana base, but, you know... Uh, it's really easy. <laughs> the, yeah, the verdict is, yes, it's really easy. <laughs> like, but to back the to basics... You go up to Magister of the Moon, you know, because you're like, yeah, just two of this effect is good against my worst matchup lands. <laughs> yeah, but back to basics is actually backbreaking against them. With Blood Moon, if you've got, you know, your island and your swamp and five mountains, you can still cast about 80% of the cards in, in your deck every turn you can cast. You probably can't cast two spells that often, but you can always cast one. If it's back to basics instead, you can probably cast roughly zero spells per turn, uh, which my understanding is is bad. Yeah, I, it, this was actually one of the fears in in the committee when we're discussing the uh, D point of back to basics. Uh, I was basically like, wait a second, wait a second. I need a test to make sure we don't just make inadvertently the best deck in the format 
literally the king of all decks because it basically takes all of the blue moon things, jams them into Kess and goes, this is now the best control deck. There is no diversity in control. This is, you know, the only one you can play. Uh, it didn't work. Every time I tried it, you know, you have to take out, you have to take out him to Turak and you, you the last hope. So bad. Yeah. And so, and then you go like, okay, now I've taken out two of my creature lands as well to play the back to basics. So it's an actual cost and you occasionally cheese people out. But so many times you just constantly screw yourself and you're like, this isn't fair, but I took out him and Lily. I don't have any double black pip cards. This is not fair. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah like you cannibalize your whole deck for like one extra sideboard card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Which is but the anyway, third copy so, of its effect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back to basics and strip mine are good against the control decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot more people were gunning for the control decks. Yeah. So this is, I think, this is the result we wanted to see, you know, where you yeah, kind of go... Yeah, this is the sort of thing where the metagame is balancing itself a bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, moving on to the next one. This one is not a surprise. Uh, we're now turning over to um, mid-range. Mid-range, 21.6% of the meta, uh, 31.25% of the top 16 metagame breakdown. This is a 21% hit rate. You are more likely to... Uh, get into the top cut if you're running mid-range in this uh, pseudo 113 person event but it is not surprising because it is the ex- because it is the exact same trend as 2018 throughout 2018 mid-range was the dark horse where it was kind of like yeah a sensible number of people sleeve this up yes it looks like it's a you know a good deck you know it seems to have good matchups but also a couple of bad matchups and does get blood mooned and so on but statistically you are just more likely to do well by being mid-range and it's just continued yeah i feel like um mid-range i mean traditionally this is very generally speaking in uh, across multiple formats like mid-range tends to be the predator of aggro decks so like with the influx of aggro decks that we talked in that we talked about previously it kind of just gave i wouldn't say free wins but it gave like a bunch of relatively easier matchups for the mid-range decks and you know across 2018 as we were talking about with control everyone's saying oh how do i beat Kess? i'm gonna tune my Kess deck for the Kess mirror um mm. mid-range players are sort of having the same conversation it's like oh what mid-range deck should i play and people are saying oh yidris it's really good against Kess. and it's on how mm. these are some changes you can make it better against Kess. you know and then like maybe not to the extent that Kess decks were cannibalizing themselves for the mirror but mid-range decks were actively playing you know more value cards to yeah. beat other control decks and cutting yidris you know like it's yeah know, oh, well, yidris <laughs> isn't really good in the mid-range they cut yidris for Kess. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love it um oh, Kess everywhere yeah, look, this is... It's a trend we'll keep watching. Mid-range decks being slightly better conversion rate, I'm broadly okay with because although it's, you don't want Highlander to just descend into mid-range hell, which it has been at some points in the past, mm. people enjoy playing the... I mean, I enjoy playing these sort of, you know, between two and five colour dirtly decks where you get to play these sweet five and six drop creatures and planeswalkers and... Just have a really good time playing these really sweet spells. Yeah, um, and that's 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 a nice you know environment for Highlander to be in. And look, if if mid range just became the one thing you can do in Highlander to be good, then that's a problem. But you know, getting to that point, if we get to that point, you can't really solve that easily from pointing, but you can solve it by changing the meta. You know, you help co- combo. Combo is now better, and therefore the mid-range decks ha- are forced to run Duress, Inquisition, Thoughtseize in the main deck and have to, you know, uh, uh, combat that combo 
menace and reduces their win win percentage. So yeah, you know, it's not really the times of um, you know point all these two for ones because they're just good cards. You, you, it's a slippery slope. They just keep going <laughs> one one way. They just keep playing other good cards. There are certainly some categories of mid range deck. Certainly the red green Dinobots, which there's some combo decks you just basically can't beat unless you you know blood moon them on turn one or mm-hmm. something um mm-hmm. because they are just your kryptonite because you're trying to set up your sweet engines and they're going by the way uh channel emrakul or something um and you're just not set up to cope with that this is a good good time to turn our attention to combo so uh we'll skip the next one we'll go to combo combo was 10.8 percent of the metagame it was drum roll da 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 zero percent of the top sixteen, uh, with a grand total of a zero percent hit rate. Uh, this makes you not only dramatically less likely, but from a statistical point of view, <laughs> you are not going to do well if you sleeve up a yeah. combo deck. Uh, this is a really I don't really know if bad result for combo. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, this is this is pretty bad. Look, combo in the past has has been fine and has seen a trend downward in conversion throughout 2018 basically this uh you know pretty steady downward trend where people were still sleeving it up but getting gradually worse and worse uh conversion rate until now we see it hit literal rock bottom uh now there are there are a number of factors here but i will turn it over to you guys and you can uh, maybe tell us uh why is combo doing so poorly I mean, one of the things, again, is what we discussed earlier, like a bunch of quote-unquote regular combo players switch to aggro. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did think of another point, which is just you know a possibility. Is it possible that because Highlander has seen such an influx of new players over the past, say, year, year and a half, that those players, like you said, new players tend to not um, look at combo decks, they look at, oh, let's play some aggro or mid-range. Is it possible that due to the influx of new players, we've seen, you know, um, an inflation of other archetypes and hence it makes it look like combo is going on the downturn? Uh, I think that's definitely possible. Um, I mean, I think another thing to, to keep in mind is at CanCon, I'm just looking at the numbers now, if you look at the actual top 16 at just that event, you've got three combo decks in the top actual 16 which all missed out on the top eight by mm. you know a match narrow margin most. narrow margin um a lot of them had winning well several of them had winning ins i'm pretty sure jp had a win in um playing storm so it can be slightly misleading looking at these stats as, as we said at the start it's a, it's a small sample size and we're talking about it sort of high view only you're just hoping like oh could we have not just got one combo player into one of those <laughs> yeah. just to like make this show that someone can do well with a combo deck but yeah narrow margins there's a lot of you know small sample size but what we can yeah. say just as a broad stroke is that combo's not really combo converting very well. well at the moment you know it's just yeah. uh, and, and that's but, something that can be solved in a variety of ways but um what i will do is i'll, I'll switch it around we'll pivot to tempo and the two can be discussed in tandem because they are both uh, small representations. Uh, so tempo was, you know, similar to combo, nine point one percent. However, it has a dramatic twenty five percent of the top cut representation, which gives it, you know, the expected mean hit rate is fourteen point four percent. It gives it a forty percent hit rate to uh, get into a top cut. 
making you dramatically more likely to actually make the cut if you're sleeping up tempo. And it is uh, a perfect example of where you have some kind of archetype that's underrepresented. So there's not many people playing it, but those people do very, very well. And it could be a factor of the deck being busted. It could be a factor of the player being busted and you should put points on the player. Uh, <laughs> and it's a very similar thing that happens with the combo decks, you know. Small sample, but that small sample doesn't do well due to a variety of things. It can be player, it can be, you know, mar narrow margins, it can be just someone happened to top deck that duress on that turn when they were going to go off the following turn, you know. So uh, keep that with a, uh, you know, it's a grain of salt. But tempo is doing well. And, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to say... If you just look at the actual events from the last, uh, so at the the last major event pre this in South Australia, uh, I won that event with Rug Life. Then I did a deck tech on it, and people started to sleeve up Rug Life. And then uh, Tim Evers wins an event with Rug Life. Tim Evers does another top eight with Rug Life. Uh, Juzza wins an event with Rug Life. So. Uh, this is basically a pool. The, the rug life players are four people, you know, three or three or four people. And all of the people have done well. Uh, I, I believe that I am not the best Highlander player. I am an okay to decent Highlander player. Um, but I believe the deck is very, very good. And I've been on record saying it is the best tempo deck. Uh, and it is probably the most busted thing you can be doing uh, in Highlander in a fair deck, you know, playing Ancestral Recall and Time Walk uh, and finding it consistently. When you when you play the version that, that I'm playing, which is all of your points, Thug Life in just two cards, the rest of your deck just feels great. Like you just feel like you're playing this great like legacy game of tempo. And then you draw one of those cards and you're like, I can't lose. I just, I, I time walk, I can't lose. I acorn, I can't lose. Oh, I'm going to regrowth the acorn. I can't lose, you know? So like, uh, there's there's a lot of factors going on here, but the seeing the, the proof in the pudding here of seeing Tempo performing yet again well is just um, kind of, me feeling a little bit, little bit happy about myself that this, uh, uh, you know, Sav Tempo is doing decently. Um, yeah. Please don't point, you know, hashtag committee, please don't point. Oh, wait a second. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, if so, I was you, Sav, I'd actually be very proud. Like seeing a deck that you created do well in like the hands of your friends is like a great feeling. Uh, I'm, I'm proud father. I'm at the piano <laughs> recital and I'm like little tear in the eye standing up and applauding and just, you know, it's so emotional. I was thinking um, more of the hockey game where your kid wins the fight, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so one, one thing to just, um, not to put too much of a damper on it, but um, so 25% means four decks in our virtual top 16. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it is worth mentioning that two of those are the same person yes. uh, playing the same deck. So um, Tim Evers from Canberra, uh, played the deck very well. He's a very good player. Um, and that does skew your statistics a bit. As, as I said before, when you've got repeat people in these two events, it can do some funny things to your stats. That said, um, it's still done very well. I mean, it won both of the events. Uh, mm. 
Which has got to count for something. Got to count for something, uh, right? And, and <laughs> it, it, it does explain a lot about the rest of the metagame. So you see how control yeah. is performing poorly, like the worst conversion rate it, it's ever had. And I've been on the record saying that, you know, tempo is the natural predator of control. You know, it's the hawk and control is the mouse, you know, yeah. a mouse that can somehow just ruffle stomp every other animal in the animal kingdom. But then the hawk comes in and just goes, hey, hey, hey you know, I got my eyes on you. And, um, the this this kind of explains this this split in these two events where control is not doing well, tempo's doing very well. Oh wait, yeah, absolutely. Quarter of the meta was control. Yeah, like it, it, control wasn't doing well, but it had the volume. Like mm. it was just a bunch of mouse waiting to die. Exactly, know? just line them up, knock them down. Uh, I was chatting with Tim afterwards, and you know, Tim made kind of like one of those you know um, wry smile comments where where he's like, yeah, yeah, I just had real no resistance. I just just played every match, and it was just like I can't lose. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, going it's a great that, feeling. That's just kind of the feeling that it was. You know, when you're lining up against control decks, and you're you sometimes dodge those really really greedy mid range decks uh that can just you know really really dominate you where you're, they're going max value and you're like oh my delver of secrets dies to your two for one uh, this feels bad um yeah yeah I mean, that's how it feels it's often a problem for tempo and, and aggro decks just going back to that that if your plan is to be playing delvers of secrets and curd apes and young pyromancers well young pyro can run away with the game um and your opponent's plan is to be playing like Obstinate Balos and Thrag Tusks, their creatures are just better than yours. Mm-hmm. So if you if you get to a point in the game where they're just you know deploying a threat or two a turn and you haven't killed them or almost killed them, your life is really hard because yeah. they're just going to overwhelm you with not strictly what you would call card advantage, but just my stuff is way better advantage. Yeah, it's like when when your opponent goes Colligan's command and you go Spellpierce, you feel so good. You feel like I am a genius, yeah. you know. I am the god of magic here. <laughs> then the other game where your opponent draws the Colligan's command, you don't have the Spellpierce. They kill your Delver, they make you discard a card. The next turn you draw Spellpierce, and for the rest of the game they play, you know, obstinate Baloths and you know other and and Kessers. You're like, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, in the alternate universe where the Colgan's command resolves. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, right, that's, right. Alternate, that's right, the alternate universe. So yeah. uh, what what we will say is from a from a, a committee point of view, uh, from 2018, we were always chatting about, you know, you can't really point cards in control, but you can release other cards instead that try you know try to prey on control and that will adjust your your metagame uh the data seems to indicate that from last year that was generally successful um and now we're at that critical mass where you know control has got to a point where it's in line with the other archetypes there's a little bit of a tipping point where control is no longer generating the results that it has uh you know had exceeding success with in the past uh it's pretty fair but combo probably needs a lot of help so that'll be on our radar as a committee uh, but just kind of leave it with us to think about it, obviously. But feel free to make posts, feel free to make comments on Facebook, you know, any any things that you're thinking about, uh, you know, we, we'd love to hear about. Yeah. So let's look at actual points. This is probably the one that people wait with with bated breath for, right? Oh, my, my pet card, my pointed card, or my card that's on the watch list, uh, please don't yep. point it, or hashtag point this thing. So this is the... Or the card that I've made, like, a billion posts in the group about complaining. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Either or. <laughs> So we'll we'll try and keep the pitchfork section relatively short. Uh, the the uh, 
point to make, obviously, is that there were only two weeks before these events, so people didn't have that much time to really test. And uh, we're going to wait and see how the current pointings do pan out over the next couple of months. But just briefly, uh, we looked at back to the ba back to basics. Back to basics was 11.7% of the field, but only had a 7.7% conversion rate, you know, versus this mean, which you expect to be about 14.4% to get into, you know, your top cut. So essentially, you're less likely to actually make the cut if you build around back to basics. And that's perfectly fine for a zero point card. That's where we expect a zero point card to be, right? Yeah, yeah um, I think that's acceptable. Like, especially with the card with Back to Basics, you know, it is it is hit or miss, and we do have a small sample size. So, like you said, we'll talk about the limitations of our statistical analysis. But, you know, even if this was accurate, like you said, I think it's fine for a zero-point card. You know, we just yeah. got depointed because we felt it wasn't good enough, and, you know, the data kind of backs that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people were like, please, no, I don't want to live in this world with Back to Basics and, and so on, running a rampant. But... Yeah, it's uh, it seems to be fine for now, at least. Yeah. Uh, let's look at Kess. So Kess is on our watch list, uh, and it was twenty two point five percent of the field. So that is you know between mid range and uh, uh, control decks. Uh, it had a sixteen percent conversion rate. So you know it's it's converting a little bit worse, but it's you know looking at uh, about the average of you know just looking at Cataris Paribus. Are you going to actually get into your top eight? with this uh, but essentially you know fewer people are actually going to top eight with uh, Kess um, this is you know probably fine you know it's uh, it's it's uh, a zero point card at the moment um, it has a generally bad conversion rate compared to you know what you the number of people that rock up with it um, but we just keep an eye on it. You know, that's that's all we can really say. Uh, it's it's not like 22% uh, of the field and then, you know, suddenly everyone top eight, the whole top eight is just dominated by yeah. Kess. Yeah. So, not like last time in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, was it six Kesses in the top eight? So, yeah, uh, so it, many it, was something, it was something I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, and I think Kess is, just a brief aside about the nature of the watch list in general, like... These aren't cards that we're necessarily sure we're going to... Well, they're definitely cards we're not sure we're going to point, although we would have just pointed them. Um, we're watching everything in the format, broadly speaking, um, or we try to. The card being on the watch list is more just notification to the community that this mm. is something that we would like to hear their opinions on or we'd like to discuss with them or we'd like them to discuss amongst themselves sort of thing. Um, so when we say, hey, Kess is on the watch list, part of what we want to see is do people go that should definitely be a point or that violently shouldn't be a point or, you know, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. It's really it's just sharing. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like even if it makes someone go, Oh, that Kess card, I haven't thought about it. I'm going to play it. And then well, they have the experience and they say, Hey, uh, I played this card. It feels like this, you know, that's an experience yeah. data point and opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because we both don't have, I mean, we don't have close to enough data as we've discussed, uh, ad nauseum, uh, during this episode. Um, but we don't have what you would describe as boundless time to work these things out either. Um, like we talk about it a bunch and we think about it a bunch, but we don't have time to say, all right, cool, let's play 50 games of decks with Kess against these other 20 decks. Because this is just not something we can remotely possibly do. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, community community support is always great with this kind of thing. Um, yeah. Pooling all of our uh, knowledge into a brains trust. So yeah. the brains trust was um, you know interesting on strip mine obviously because people thought that's not too contentious a decision to to re- bring it down to to one point. Uh, I think people warmed to the idea over time. It kind of just took a bit of time for people to just kind of pass it, and then it and then it uh, was okay. Statistically, it was strip mine was in twenty seven percent of the decks that people slaved up. It had a sixteen point six conversion rate. So uh, you know you're less likely to top eight when you've got a strip mine in your deck. But if you just look at, you know, Cataris Paribus, just the mean of what you're expecting, 14.4%. You know, this is kind of what you'd expect to see ballpark roughly for a card. You know, there's there's um, no warning signs here. Again, small data, but still no warning signs. Um, we'll just keep an eye on it. You know, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where, you know, when something is one one point you know this kind of one point card and someone else leaves up another deck with a one point card you probably expect them to perform relatively similarly and strip mine does so so just whose cats and parrots are you talking about <laughs> so cataris paribus is a rule whereby all things being equal okay cool yeah yeah i just imagine there'll be some people listening who are like what the hell is yeah it might be might be uh pronounced ceteris paribus i'm sure here comes our contentious discussion point and probably the one that uh, you know many people have been waiting for after the you know the uproar on facebook whereby people said why is mission briefing on the watch list you are wrong and it shouldn't be watched um and we clarified we're just watching it just to see and um the the majority of people in the community have said that mission briefing is a card that they're just cutting you know they've been playing it they tried it they tested it it wasn't very good and they cut it um so there's also been a lot of theory crafting around it where snapcaster is really awesome mission briefing is not snapcaster mage therefore it should not be a point so these are the kind of this is the background and this is why i'm going to say it's contentious because only 5.4% of the field actually sleeved up a mission briefing. Do you know what its conversion rate was? 33%. So that's pretty high. That's pretty high. Not yeah. only is it uh, twice as much as any other zero-point card that would make the top eight, it's also something like, you know, uh, let's say seven times as likely as it should be from a point four percent of the field actually sleeping up mission briefing there's a lot of mission briefings in your top eight cut so the numbers this is just looking at numbers alone again the committee doesn't make decisions based on solely numbers there's a lot of factors that go into it but it's something to know that the reason we're watching it is because it performs well it's it's a good card um it may not be a Snapcaster Mage for sure, but let's compare it to Snapcaster Mage. So Snapcaster Mage is uh, probably the most played pointed card across both of the events. I think it actually statistically more people sleeved up a Snapcaster Mage than any other pointed card. Now that makes 43% of the field on Snapcaster Mage. Its conversion rate is 16.7%. So 
it's about average for any card, but essentially less than the representation of Snapcaster Major. But that's because, well, you can't have everyone with Snapcaster Major in the top eight. It doesn't really work. So the numbers break down at large and small levels. Um, well, unless six decks in the top eight are Kespa, yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's, that's your, <laughs> that's your, your yeah. terrible scenario. You know, the those previous days of your 2018. Uh, yeah. yeah, seven out of eight in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so basically, you know, data indicates that we can make a broad sweeping statement that people sleeving up mission briefing across these events convert well, you know, damn well. And uh, if we look at statistically the actual conversion rate, this is where things break down. So this is why, again, we don't look at numbers alone. The exact people who converted into the top eight running mission briefing are all of the same person tim evers on rug life both times so (laughs) relying on raw data kind of fails when it's extreme numbers either way so this can either mean you know rug life is the best deck it's just been crushing it and it's because mission briefing is it's basically an eight-point deck. Oh, wow. You know, when you've got, you know, other powerful cards in a time walk, you've got more time walks and so on and so forth. Um, but it could easily be that Tim Evers is a wizard. So uh, just for, for All thought, the evidence points to that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, look, th- this is a good point, um, just to reinforce what Sav's saying. So when you say 5.4% of the field were playing mission briefing, what you mean is across the two events, there were six copies of mission briefing. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, yeah, 33% of people playing it made the top eight, i.e. two people, two i.e. People. Tim twice. Two, two Tims. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> two, two Tim Evers. Uh, everyone's yeah. worst. When you, exactly. When best. you look at it in know. statistical terms, Tim Evers has a good conversion rate. Mission yeah. briefing happens to be in his deck. Therefore, yeah. <laughs> mission briefing has a good conversion rate. It's very much a healthy yes. cohort sort of going on. <laughs> Sorry? It's a he- healthy cohort effect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yes um take from that what you will but it is is important to sorry i'm just going to jump in over the top of you i think it's important to just remember in terms of our other um cards as well you know when we say 11.7 of the field we're playing back to basics that means probably 12 or 13 people over the Mm, exact events so and, and as we've talked about on previous episodes and i'll continue to talk about you don't have to change a lot in a person's event to change some of those stats so you know you have two more people on back to basics win an extra match each and that might put one or two more people into the top eight and some suddenly we're going from a seven percent conversion rate to a 10 or a 15 or a 20 percent conversion rate like because our sample sizes are small um we talk about these statistics because they're kind of interesting and people respond well to them but it's always very important to just understand that some of these sample sizes are ludicrously small. Mm. And, uh, you know, looking at small sample sizes, we can't really draw any conclusions from Guy's Cradle as well. So Guy's Cradle, no. only 3.6% of the field, but it had a 50% conversion rate. So it's extremely swingy data. So again, yeah. you know, we know mid-range is performing well. Guy's Cradle is on the watch list. Uh, decisions are made from different perspectives, but this is just another data point. Yeah. Um, I- I think one of the other things that, again, it's not the only point, um, particularly for taking points off cards, but for putting points on cards, we're unlikely to put points on a card if out of a 120-person field, 
four people play it. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if that's been, and I think it has been for Gators Gravel, if that's reasonably consistent across a year's worth of events that, you know, between 2 and 5% of the field are playing it, and they do reasonably with it, but not outrageously, mm-hmm. then it's hard to feel like that's a massive problem with the metagame because if Gaius Gradle was wildly underpointed, um, and there are people who've tried to tell me it should be two points, um, if it was that badly un- underpointed, you wouldn't be looking at 3.6% of the field, field yeah. You'd be looking at 15 or 20 or 40% of the field playing it because although we like playing the decks we like playing and magic players can be hard to you know bump off our favorite things, we also like winning a lot. Um, and <laughs> there are certainly members of the community who have the resources and the skills to switch decks uh, as frequently as they need to to play whatever the deck they think is best on the day. And a lot of them would be switching to Gaius Cradle decks if they thought Gaius Cradle was that much better than everything else that's going on. Yeah, and it's the fact that its play rate isn't even close to the average of any other card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's woefully low, isn't it? That's, yeah, well, you know, again, that's not many people. Is, is four people. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember whether Hannah played at Cancun, but again, she might be two of those, and she's definitely one of yeah, the people. Yeah, she's one of the people that contributed to that large conversion rate, probably. Yeah. Um, well, she, she definitely is, because she made top eight of the mm-hmm. Sydney event. Yeah, um, exactly. So again, that can come down to... There are some people who can switch decks easily. There are some people who have harder time switching decks. These might just be people who have a Gaius Cradle, they enjoy playing it, and some of them did well. You know, good for them. Exactly. Um, yeah, very, very swingy. So let's... Um, uh, it's it's funny here because I've, I've got one card here and I obviously wrote all of these this document uh, a while ago and, and we're recording a little bit after the fact. Uh, I didn't even do the numbers on Tinker. So I've got Tinker as the title and I have simply four words and it says Tinker remains a stinker. So uh, you can edit this out, but I'm just going to say this now. Just you probably should edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not editing that out. That's it. Okay, awesome. It's, it's permanent. <laughs> <laughs> we need. Do we need? Do we need a, like a, a radio jockey to be able to like press buttons, and every time something happens, you make the boing noise from a spring. Then you have the audience applause, and then you have the, the toilet noise. flush. Yeah, the toilet flush. Yeah. <laughs> Tinker. <laughs> I'm. I still remain convinced that Tinker is a much better, in a better position than people have adapted for yet. Yeah, but people haven't sleeved it up. To- we don't have the numbers to say you know that it has a good conversion rate because people just didn't sleeve it up, and that's because they went well. Yeah, like it's not really well positioned. I haven't had time to test it. So many factors yeah. that tr- attributed to them not sleeving up Tinker. It's a powerful card. And it just needs to find the right home, and people need to brew with it, and eventually we'll find uh, maybe a deck yeah. that isn't a stinker with Tinker. Yeah. But I guess I should go back to my previous point about um, if it was that powerful, perhaps more people would be playing it. Who knows? Um, I, I know that um, one of the Canberra locals was playing it at our last local event and did not have a great time with it. Because there were so many uh, Colgan's commands and abrades and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. maybe they should try time traveling back to 2013. <laughs> <laughs> but where's that I mean, machine? <laughs> I, I, th- I think one of the things about that um, that people should consider is 
and it's certainly something I did between CanCon and Sydney, which improved my deck significantly, is some of these cards that do have the incidental artifact hate, like uh, Fiery Confluence, are a lot worse at the moment. So yes, they make artifacts worse, but they also, by being so dominant, make themselves worse. And I think less of them should be main than are currently in people's decks. So um, Fiery Confluence in particular, now that it can't hit Planeswalkers, if you're not very excited by the deal three, like the the, um, Pyroclasm plus mode, you should probably just not have this in your main deck. Um, is my opinion. It's still a really good sideboard card, which, you know, does put a damper on things like Tinker. But um, the Highlander metagame, because of the nature of there not being a huge number of players, can be slow to adapt to these sort of things. And it is worth just considering that, you know, as artifacts get uh, become worse positioned in the metagame, the things that really strongly hate on them also become worse positioned and you get, you know, you eventually reach a Nash equilibrium of some kind where uh, those get played less and artifacts get played more and you sort of balance between the two and then someone um, rocks up with a tinker deck and just spikes an t- event and then suddenly everyone's like wow tinker yeah. is a good card and then suddenly they sleep it up and then the artifacts become artifact hate becomes better and yeah, yeah. It's- and, and this is actually something i was going to say about combo earlier now that i think about it is um i suspect at the moment that too many people have too much combo hate in their boards just sort of out of a fear reaction. Uh, I know it's it's a common thing for new players to do. You'll often see new players who've played in modern and whatever um, who'll sit down and their first round opponent will be on like Storm or something. They'll be like, sweet, I assumed this format was all Storm decks because that's what I assume all old powerful formats are. So I've got 11 sideboard cards to say. <laughs> yeah, um, like, it's definitely that perception of like old format, busted stuff, I'm going to die on turn two, sort of fear. I still have it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, uh, my zoo deck still definitely contains more pieces of hate for Storm than it probably should. Um, I know a lot of people who basically they don't leave home without Null Rod and Energy Flux yeah. in their sideboard. And yeah. you're like, did you read the meta? Because you're basically playing a 13-card sideboard. This meta has <laughs> none of these decks. Don't worry yeah. about it. Or they, yeah. they play with... Uh, Mindbreak Trap and you know some other dedicated Storm hate cards, and then they you know they they have like the Eidolon and the uh, Ether Swan Cannonist, and you go well actually if you didn't play those cards and played Null Rod so that you can hate on both the Artifact deck and the Storm deck with a little bit of soft hate. And then actually play some one side good, woods, yeah, exactly. Play <laughs> play cards that hedge up your weak matchups, and yeah. realize that there's only one storm player and maybe zero artifact players on that particular day. Just read the meta and change it. De- People don't like changing their sideboards. They like to. Oh, this is this is a sacred cow. I cannot cut energy flux or something like that because it's so good in this this situation. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, t- tinker is a thing that you know, will change with the meta and I, I'm certain yeah. someone will build with it. Yeah, look, I, I, it's definitely a, a point changer that I'm going to let sort of, I want to let seep into the format for a while. So the next major data point is there's... So an- are we really skipping through that nemesis? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, ha- nemesis. Oh, we have to talk to it. This is the yeah. reason I'm on this episode. So uh, before we finish talking about the points, Sav, uh, last data episode after Melbourne, you kind of talked about all the data points and then you kind of really 
beta betaed us out. He said, "Oh, there's there's this card. These are all the stats. Uh, you know, guess what it is." And everyone's like, "Oh, I think it's A. Oh, I think it's B." And everyone was wrong. And that card was True Name Nemesis. Mm-hmm. Now you really wound us up with all the stats and its performance, and I assume it's performed well again. How has True Name performed oh, at, yeah. at the CanCon and Sydney collectively? So uh, I don't have my numbers in front of me because it was just too good. It was just too astounding. Uh, True Name Nemesis was... I was looking at it, I'm like, these numbers are... These are just too blown out. So I won't give you the numbers, but I can guarantee you that True Name Nemesis remains to be not only the most sleeved up card behind Snapcaster Mage. Uh, I think it might be parallel with Jace, depending on you know which which event you look at as well. But it has one of the best conversion rates, and you will note this simply by scrolling through the top eight of every 2018 event, and especially the last two top eights of these two uh, January-February events. True Name Nemesis is in a lot of decks. A lot. So... We've had many times where, you know, people go, oh, yeah, True Name Nemesis, it's just very, very good, you know, but it's not really two points, right? You wouldn't pay True Name Nemesis at two points. Oh, but then it becomes a critical decision, you know? Certain decks definitely want to sleeve up True Name Nemesis and will definitely play two points for it, whereas all the control decks now go, oh, I'd rather play Dig Through Time. I'm not going to play this random win con when Mm. I can play a different win con. Um, I continue to extol the fact that True Name Nemesis is a no-brainer decision and basically should be in every single fair blue deck because it wins games way more than any free roll one-point back-to-basics used to. When people go, oh, it's just a free win. Sometimes I draw back-to-basics and my opponent just loses. True Name Nemesis does that in spades and you don't have to build around it ever. You just put it in the deck. True Name Nemesis... Back to Basics absolutely does that. You play Back to Basics on turn two and your opponent's probably going to lose. True Name Nemesis does that when you play it on turn two and it does it when you play it on turn nine. Um, <laughs> it it gums up the board fantastically. Opposing Planeswalkers just die. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Um, it is a card that is quite hard for the mid-range decks to beat a lot of the time. Uh, they just play it though. They just, they just play their own, right? But, well, yeah, if they're Bloom Red range, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is uh, the worst I... for aggro. This this is basically oh, yeah. the biggest kick in the teeth for tr- for aggro, where you're like, wait, True Name Nemesis is only one point, so that means literally every control deck doesn't even think. They don't even go like, uh, oh, should I play this or should I play that? They just go like, okay, let's build my control deck. i got a spare point. Why not chuck in True Name Nemesis? And the aggro player's like, please, I've built my whole deck around all these cards and i've had to really think about do i want wasteland do i want strip mine how am i gonna can i afford the mocks in there and you just jam true name and now i can't beat it (laughs) i don't don't think it's that the control decks have a spare point i think it's when they're building their control deck they go all right first point i'm putting in true name nemesis oh yeah that's what i do but i know (laughs) that's definitely what i do as well (laughs) yeah exactly like this is most people who know the power of true name they start with the true name but people who don't know the power of true name are in the the former camp where they're just like i've got six points i may as well just jam it in and you go well i've got other win cons maybe i can cut it now i've just i just chuck it in and usually they play it for a while and they realize wait a second I just stole like th- a, n- a number of games that I just should not have won with any other card, and it was true name. 
It's it's a very uh, good card. We, we've got Shame to steals your lunch money, and it also then you realize it went to your house and also stole something from there as well. So, <laughs> yeah. The so actually, one more thing: you can edit this out. I'll, uh, you, yeah. It's something. It's a conversation I had with Unwin a while ago. You can probably edit it out, but I'll uh, leave it anyway. It's only a couple of minutes. Um, I'll, I will leave with one anecdote, and it is a few years old. So, like, True Name got released in what was it, like end of 2013, and people were talking about it being pointed. It got pointed. People had adapted to it, but it it stayed a point, and it's still a point now. Um, a few years after it got pointed, I was had a conversation with Daniel Unwin. He's like a known Highlander player and just really good Magic player in Australia. Like six PT appearances. Uh, we, we yeah, also from Canberra. Uh, we played an event and we were talking about his deck. And he made he made a deck specifically for the event. It was like a blue green uh, cheat out creatures deck. And he told me six of the points. And I was like, okay, cool. What's your seventh point? And he's like, it's obvious, right? And so. Like, I don't know. It's, like, it's Trina Nemesis. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, yeah, that card's easily worth two points. And I would snap play it. You know, I mean, it's completely anecdotal, but that's how good the card is. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. good. Trina Nemesis, it'll steal your lunch money. It'll break into your house and steal something. And then when you call the police, they'll go, it's got diplomatic immunity. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, rounding out the episode before my laptop runs out of battery. So our next major event coming up, uh, there's the Adelaide Eternal Highlander Cup on Saturday the 6th of April is the Highlander Day. Uh, and then there's a Legacy on the Sunday, I believe. Yep. We've got vintage um, as well in the evening as well. So, But oh, the details will come out. Check out Facebook. They'll probably already be up by the time this episode airs. We've got a beautiful, bright space, lovely natural light. We've got uh, some uh, excellent prizes up for grabs, so including uh, Moxon and a suite of dual lands, so like a top eight just with everyone walking away with dual lands. So um, it's a pretty good event. Come on down to Adelaide and we'll make sure we put you up. Cool. All right, so... Thanks, everyone, for joining us this episode. Uh, thanks especially to our special guest, Julian, uh, thanks, for coming Julian. along. Mm, happy to be here. We'll probably have him along in the future. Um, so you can follow us on Twitter uh, at HighlanderCast. Shoot us questions feedback. We can answer you your questions directly there. Um, if you'd like to follow any of us individually, uh, Vance is on... I'm talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> um, I, I'm on no, Twitter. No, Millie, Millie, we haven't adjusted your outro. <laughs> Millie's <laughs> listening to this and she's like, yep, I know what you're reading. <laughs> Fancy's at Fancy Notions. <laughs> yeah. Um, or if you prefer Facebook, check our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Highlandercast. Uh, Julian, do you have a Twitter handle that you'd like and to? No, uh, you can't find me on Twitter, but you can find me on Facebook uh, at Julian Hahn. You'll, you'll see me in the Highlander group talking, and you can Sweet. also just find me on Discord. Feel free to send me a DM there. Cool. Um, if you like what you hear, you can go over and join the show's Patreon. Um, we really appreciate everyone who helps out. Um, the Patreon is patreon.com slash Highlandercast. Um, and if you'd like to get more involved in the community in general, you can go to ozeternal.com or search up 7 Point Highlander on Facebook, uh, as Sav just mentioned. There's a very active Facebook group there. And there's a Discord, which, if I remember, will be in the show notes. It often is. Yeah. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. See ya. See ya, everyone.